Van Battle Stations missile for WSRT. Spin up all missiles. Welcome to Merced, California. A picture-perfect town that harkens back to the glory days of this state's rich agricultural history. We are really a breadbasket for the nation. Any sort of crops from various kinds of fruits, cotton, melons, you name it, it's grown here in Merced. If you drive down the streets of Merced, you'll feel like you went back at least 20 years. That's not to say Merced is stuck in the past. There are plenty of young faces too. The University of California, Merced, is based here, so it is a growing university town. I would prefer not to. Bartleby the Scrivener, anybody? Not a big Melville crowd here, huh? He's not an easy read. It's a child being born, it's money to survive. Is that worth it? Is that worth a human life? This is Plausibly Live, the official podcast of The Dave Bowman Show. There is nothing more deceptive than an obvious fact. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle once said that. Jesus answered, said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Hey, welcome to Friday, everybody. It's Plausibly Live, the official podcast of the Dave Bowman Show. You want to join me? 565-DAVE is the text machine. It's also the voicemail machine. Give me a voicemail. You can email me, Dave at thedavebowmanshow.com, and get us on the web, thedavebowmanshow.com, as well as on Facebook and Twitter. Eloqui conizio, stand up. Tell those who oppose liberty, don't tread on me. So the Investigation Discovery Show was uh, aired Wednesday. Uh, I have watched it a couple of times since then, and I appreciate the the very kind notes from those of you that also saw it, and um, let me know that. It was, not to put too fine a point on it, a very interesting and learning experience to be on a show like that. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with Blood Relatives, it is a murder documentary where they take a murder case and they story it up, I guess is the best way to put it, and they, they tell you the story of what happened. And, and they do so because we're fascinated by murder. The the dark side of human nature, which requires, which is required to take someone's life. As human beings, we're fascinated by this because it's a, it's a deep look into psychology. It's, it's a deep look into ourselves in a lot of ways. You, you, you start pulling these families apart, these crimes apart, and you start seeing things in yourself and you start saying, well, wait a minute, that situation, I know how that feels. And in this particular case, I think we've all been there at some point in our lives where we start questioning whether someone who is in our life loves us just for the fact that we're us or loves us because of what we can do for them. And when we can no longer do whatever it is that they love that we did for them, um, things go south usually pretty quickly. Although in this particular case, uh, 
they went uh, six feet under, and the uh, the family ended up killing the the stepdad for his money. In essence, um, it, it's a it's a terrible case. It's a terrible tragedy, and it's one of those things that you look at and you go, well, those are those people are scum, especially the mother who put her child and her her, her children involved in this, and her children's her grandchild's father into this, and. You, you shake your head and you just go, people, you, you, there's just no predicting sometimes what they're going to do and how they're going to do things. So from that aspect of it, I, I think it's an interesting show. And I, as I said, I did watch it. What I found particularly interesting about it was, well, it's the truth. I, I, I want to say this up front. That show is is factually, there's... There's not a statement in that show that's not factually accurate. Not one. The interesting thing about it, though, is if you were to watch that show and then sit down with me over a cup of coffee and let's talk about the case, and the only knowledge you had of that case came from that television show, we might come to some very radically different understandings about what happened and why. And... Even where, if you are paying close attention. So, how did I get involved in this? Well, a, a, it's hard to explain this, I guess. I, I don't want to give too much away here, but the, I, I got asked to do it by uh, a, another Clear Channel employee. They came to me and said, hey, uh, Investigation Discovery does this show. Um, they're looking for a local Central Valley media person to be on the show to talk about the case. And my initial reaction was to reject it. I, I, I had no interest in doing it, not because I'm not uh, egotistical enough to be on TV. I am not. But I'm, frankly, I had no familiarity with the case. You already know that the case did not take place in Stanislaw County or San Joaquin County or anywhere around this direct area, it happened uh, in Merced County, which for the better part of the eight years that I was on the air was always no man's land between Fresno and Modesto. Every time I would talk about a, Fres or a Merced story in detail, I would get yelled at because that's, quote, Fresno's area, but they wouldn't talk about some of the stories. It was, it was strange. It was hands-off. And so when I, when I heard that it was in Merced County, I kind of said, eh, I'm not comfortable with that. I was prevailed upon politely. I mean, I'm, nobody's, nobody twisted my arm, okay? Let's, let's be clear about that. And eventually, uh, because of ego and, and wanting to get my name out there a little bit better, I agreed to go ahead and do it. On a bright morning, I went down to Merced and met the Investigation Discovery crew down there sat in a large upstairs banquet room in downtown Merced, and for the better part of two hours, they threw questions at me about the case. Well, what do you think about this? Tell me about this person. You know, that sort of thing. Now, you'll already know that the show is only an hour long, which means in TV terms it's 43 minutes. Um, and you'll know that I was only on it if you added up all of my segments together, there may be a minute out of this whole two-hour interview that I did. That, of course, is not unusual in the, in the larger sense, but it is a little, 
I'm not sure what the word for it is, but you know, you spend a good deal of time prepping. You drive almost an hour south of where I live. You sit there for two hours interviewing questions. You're very stiff, uh, couldn't move. Um, I had a cup of coffee in my hand. I actually spilled it on myself at one point. Obviously, that didn't make the film, but you, you invest all this, and you drive home, and you're thinking to yourself, well, I could have said that better. I could have said this better. Um, you're sending an email to your boss saying, hey, good news. We're going to be on television, and you just kind of you, you think to yourself, well, you know, a minute? Come on. <laughs> I was worth more than that, right? But you kind of put that aside because people did, did see it, and so then you... Then you see it presented, and I, I'm not sure how to verbalize this, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna blunt it, and and say it the way I, I feel about it. The case that was presented on television again, a hundred percent factual. Everything that was said there was factually accurate. It was all the right things. But that case was in no way, shape, or form the case that I talked about, the case that I studied, the case that I was prepared to talk about when I went to Merced uh, last year. There's an element here that intrigues me because, again, if you just listen to it, you know, the audio of the show, you'll get perhaps a certain impression of Merced. Uh, by the way, I can't believe they used that clip of me saying 20 years back. They, they took that, I, I don't want to say they took it out of context because it wasn't, but they definitely didn't play the whole thing. Uh, at, at any rate, because um, I said all the stuff about UC Merced and, and how, how you feel that way, but it's getting better. I mean, it's, anyway, point being that this, this presentation gives you this idea that this family of four people was just like you or I for the most part, and had hit financial problems and, you know, the dynamics of a step family and the likes of that. And ultimately, Alberto Macias wasn't feeling good one day and his loving wife, who was secretly plotting against him, said, why don't you go lay down in the bedroom? And he went, and, and if you watch it on TV, he goes into a way nicer bedroom than you or I have lays down in that beautiful bed with that fluffy comforter on him and, of course, is shot and killed there. That's kind of what happened, except that it was in a hovel in Dos Palos, not, not Merced, although they never said that. They sort of implied it and, or, or allowed you to infer it from what they said. Moreover, he was in a, on a mattress on the floor in a house next door to where uh, the mother lived. He was not allowed into the house because of the accusations by the daughter. There were more than one daughter of, of sexual assault. Um, and the whole thing is just, again, it's presented factually accurately, but it's not presented factually accurately. You're given a visualization which does not match the reality of the situation. We're, we're shown very beautiful women uh, that Laura is, you know, just really hot and her teenage daughter is, uh, is hot and, and Eric, the son, is clean cut and, you know, 
college student and 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 alberto is a really uh, handsome hard-working dude and and of course none of this was the case these people were um i'm not sure what the term for it is but they were far more prototypical of what you would expect to find in a very poor neighborhood in dos palos than a very ritzy neighborhood in merced it was intriguing to me as i'm watching more and more of this because again i'm hearing the facts of the case and I've read the police reports, and I've read the newspaper, the contemporary newspaper reports, and I've read, uh, you know, I've seen the crime scene photos, and, I, and I've done these things, and I'm looking at this on the TV going, wow, they really sexed this up, because, of course, sex sells, and there you go. So you get a very beautiful woman to play Laura Hernandez, who in real life is, and I'm not trying to be mean here, uh, not nearly as attractive as the the actress who portrays her in this uh, vignette on Investigation Discovery. But it started me thinking because here was a situation where Investigation Discovery's blood relatives told the truth. They presented a factually accurate case to you about the murders, the Macias murder, in uh, Merced County in 2010. But they did so in a way that while it's factually accurate, you can't call them up and go, well, you lied, you, you misrepresented, you, you told an untruth. You can't do that because at the very beginning it says this story based on, and it says this story based on real events. So they've already walked away from the, the necessity to be visually accurate if you get my drift. They've already, they've already turned it into a story as opposed to a court case in some ways. I, I, I think I'm a little uncomfortable with that because, again, you present this as a documentary, you know, but in reality, it's, it's a movie about based on a murder, and it's not real. Uh, it's factually, like I said, it's, I keep coming back to it's factually accurate, but you, get, you, you walk away from it with a completely different view of what really happened. And this, is, this of course, brings us to the element of you know, the, the nature of truth. Just because something is factually accurate doesn't mean that it's correct. In other words, you, you see things all the time that are, you know, well, I'm telling the truth. PolitiFact rated what I said 100% or you know, whatever. You have people who are running around the country whose entire shtick is, well, I'm saying, what, I'm saying the truth. I'm saying what people want to hear. Well, saying what people want to hear, saying things that are factually accurate, isn't necessarily the same thing as telling the truth and the whole truth, is it? And as I watched this show, that really resonated with me because I, I'm starting to realize that they took some disparate and strange and oddball circumstances. A radio host who, frankly, until a week before they called him, had never even heard of this case, sat me down for, for two hours and grilled me as if I were a witness in this thing. And then 
did this, as I presume, with other people. In fact, I know that Sheriff Paisan was coming after me uh, in, in the same place and some other people were coming uh, that you see there in the film. And I, I don't know what attitude they walked in there with. I walked in there very nervous. In fact, the first thing I said to the guy was, I, I don't know that I'm the right guy to do this. Oh, don't worry about it. And he was right, because they essentially, it didn't really matter what I said. I could have said Mickey Mouse killed the guy, and that would have gotten cut out, and they would have used the, the cogent things that I had to say in presenting and in crafting the vision that they wanted to craft, which is that, you know, this scheming, conniving, evil mother used her, her daughter to uh, essentially blackmail the, the killer into shooting her husband so that her son could then collect a million dollars in insurance to pay for his college. It's a really, it's an intriguing experience. And if you've never done anything like this, I don't, I don't really know how to describe it to you other than you have an expectation of what this is going to be. And then when you finally see it on film, when you finally see it on the television, it it didn't upset me. It really didn't make me mad. It really didn't upset me. It, it, it was a lesson to me in the sense that something that's factually accurate doesn't necessarily reflect the truth. And when you start putting that in the big picture of today, you start realizing that just because someone says something that's the truth or factually accurate doesn't mean that they're showing you what you want to see, does it? So I, I opened the story today, with the show today, with this story from the book of Luke. Now, again, I'm not Christian, but I think that there are some, some interesting lessons to be pulled from this, and it's that parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, in 1997, I was a pastor at the time. I was a Christian pastor once upon a time, went to seminary, graduated, all that stuff, uh, even did a wedding once upon a time. I went to Israel in September of 1997. And, I, and I've said this many times, for 10 contiguous days, they're probably the best 10 straight days of my life. I, I went to Israel with intent. I went native. I, I made a point of eating in restaurants and on the streets, not in the hotels. I drank the water. I fell in love with falafel. I skipped organized meals to go see things that I wanted to see. And it was, as I said, 10 of the best days of my life. The trip down to Jericho is one that all the tourists make. You get in a bus in Jerusalem, you go out to the, uh, to the highway there, and the highway goes on the south edge of this giant canyon, 26 miles to Jericho, or 13 miles to Jericho, sorry, 13 miles to Jericho. And halfway along this thing is what they call the Inn of the Good Samaritan, which is where this parable is supposed to have taken place where the man is attacked. The Samara, the man, is attacked by robbers. He's left for dead. The priest comes by. He passes by on the other side. The, the Levite comes by. He passes by on the other side of the road. And then the Samaritan comes by and helps him. And the gist of the story, of course, is that the man who had no reason to help does so. If you know anything about the history of uh, the Old Testament, New Testament, the Samaritans are. Well, if you're like me and you went to Sunday school in a Wesleyan Methodist uh, setup, you, you, you were told that Samaritans are uh, half-breeds. That's not quite true, but clearly they and the Jews don't like each other. 
And there's a, there's a historical reason for that that I don't have time to get into today, maybe some other time. But the man who was hated helped. And so we feel good about this story. And it's a factually true story in the sense that it's a parable. It takes place in a place where we can go and see and put our tactile hands on it. We can feel it. We can see it. If you go there, however, you may, like me, be captivated by the view. Now, as you drive down the road to Jericho from Jerusalem, you'll, the road is about as wide as my office, maybe 10 feet, maybe, in most places. If you sit on one side of the bus, you're looking up at a, at a very steep, unclimbable hill. And if you're sitting on the other side of the bus, you're looking down into a at least half-mile deep chasm, a canyon on the one side, and there's no guardrails, and this bus is swinging way out over the edges, and you're, they do it on purpose to, to scare people, and, and it's, it's an exciting, fun little ride that hopefully doesn't end with the bus rolling down this canyon. But as you're standing, when you finally reach the end of the, of the Good Samaritan, there's this wide open space. You can get off the bus, do all the tourist things, you know, give the little girl a dollar to have your picture taken with her camel, and, and you know, buy the olive wood crosses and the, the mementos and the stuff like that, and um, you, you can do all that stuff. And you can look across the canyon, and as you look across the canyon, you'll see on the other side a monastery that was built, uh, you know, at some point in the past history, it was built down there. It's kind of built into the side of the hill, much like Mesa Verde in Colorado. It has that same kind of uh, look to it. I was standing there staring at that, looking across the way, and of course the whole group had kind of moved over somewhere else, and I continued to stare at that because there was something in that scene that I was looking at that really caught my eye. And this goes back to what I'm talking about, about you can say things that are factually true, factually accurate, without ever really telling the whole story. To you and I, reading the New Testament today, we read that story and we get a certain vision, a vision that's been replayed millions of times in films and in plays and in skits and the likes of that at summer camp, where the priest and the Levite, you know, kind of step around the young man laying on the, on the ground and the Samaritan comes and helps them. But as I, was, as I was looking across that canyon, my good friend Dean came up to me and he kind of put his hand on my shoulder and he said, what are you thinking about? And I looked at him and I looked back across the canyon and I said, do you see that road over there? He got a big smile on his face and I said, and they passed by on the other side. Doesn't mean that they walked on the other side of the road, does it? Now, Dean is a, he has a lot of education, masters, I believe doctorates now in, in Old Testament history. He's one of the best people I know when it comes to that. He just started laughing and he said, that, Dave, is why I bring you here. You see, passing by on the other side didn't mean that they crossed the other side of the road and went around. It means they walked back to Jerusalem, crossed over to the other side of the wadi, and walked the other 13 miles back down to Jericho again. Now, it doesn't change the factual accurateness of the story, and the, and the thrust of the story is that the Samaritan helped when the priest and Levite who should have helped didn't. But it changes the degree to which we understand how much they refuse to help. 
It wasn't just that they sort of, you know, looked the other way and whistled as they walked by. It wasn't as if they pretended that they couldn't see the, the woman standing on, the, on the, 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 the train while they were sitting. You know, they just shifted their newspaper and pretended not to see. It's not that. They intentionally went seven miles back to Jerusalem and then 13 miles on the other side of the canyon back to Jericho. That's a hell of a long way to go to get out of helping somebody who needs help. And when you start seeing the story that way, it doesn't change the factual accurateness of the story, but it changes how you look at the story, how you see and visualize what actually happened. The same things happen with this investigation discovery thing. When you see it on the TV, you get one impression. When you read the case files, you get something completely different, although the facts of the case remain the same. And this is why Conan Doyle said what he said. There's nothing more deceptive than an obvious fact. And candidates, political candidates, can say accurate facts, but that doesn't make it the whole story, does it? And we then have to discern for ourselves, well, okay, so this person says something accurate. Does that make it correct? Does that make it the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Swami Bibakananda said, truth can be stated a thousand different ways, yet each one can be true. And Aesop said, every truth has two sides. It's as well to look at both before we commit ourselves to either. Just because Donald Trump says things that are factually accurate doesn't mean, A, that he means them, or B, that he has any basis for carrying that factual truth to its logical conclusion. Nor does it mean that he is not creating an image that he wants you to take with you that may or may not reflect the reality of what really should be seen, even though it's factually accurate. And it's, it's kind of intriguing because if you ask somebody what color is the sky, you will get you know, a general answer, and, and I'm talking about in general, not specifically at this moment, but you will get a description that the sky is blue. The bluest skies you've ever seen are in Seattle. Uh, the blue skies are, are great. But scientists now are intrigued by the idea that the color blue might not actually exist. Now, I know that sounds like a strange thing to say. It's factually accurate. There are scientists who believe that the color blue is invented in our heads in, in, in certain ways to create an idea of something that we think we're supposed to see as opposed to something that actually exists. It sounds bizarre. And I had to read these stories multiple times because it, to me it just sounded ludicrous. But they went back in history. They went back to all these ancient cultures that never actually described the sky. They went all the way back to Egypt, ancient Egypt, and they found that they, they had no description for the color of the sky. And they began to wonder and they began to postulate whether or not blue really exists or not. 
It's a factually accurate statement that scientists, some scientists doubt that. But it doesn't paint the whole picture, does it? We have to describe the sky somehow, and we've agreed that it's blue. Whether blue actually exists or not is kind of up for debate. But when I walk outside in a few minutes and I look up at the sky, I'm expecting it to be blue. And if a candidate tells me that it's not, or, well, if a candidate tells me that it's not really blue, it might be a factually accurate statement, but is it really, is it really the truth? I think that when we base our love for a candidate or our hatred for a candidate solely on the principle that, well, that candidate says factually accurate things. And when you have to define the things that he says with the adjectives factually accurate, uh, it, it sets off alarm bells. It should set off alarm bells. Because just because something is factually accurate doesn't necessarily mean that it's, well, the truth. Certainly not the whole truth and nothing but the truth. It's almost as if it's being manipulated to have us see certain things, like a very nice house in Merced with a beautiful family, with a gorgeous wife and daughter, and a successful contractor and a, and a gorgeous son who's, who's going to college and clean cut, and a boyfriend who's hardworking, versus the reality of the situation, which is much different in a hovel in Dos Palos on a mattress, dirty mattress, in a small room where Alberto Macias actually met his death at the hands of Eric, or yeah, the hands of Edgar, the boyfriend, being driven in his getaway car by the son and the daughter, Eric and the other daughter. It was just an interesting lesson for me to see that. I, I don't think the show is bad. I watched it a couple of times because frankly I'm enough of an egotist that I see myself on TV and and done well on TV I mean they certainly they certainly used uh, the best of what I had to say but it did get me thinking about the fact that sometimes what we see and sometimes what we hear and sometimes what we're allowed to believe the the principle of inferment while it might be factually accurate isn't really what's happening. And perhaps we need to take that precaution. The fact that a candidate says something that's factually accurate doesn't mean that he's not creating an environment for, he want, for what he wants you to see, particularly someone who has a background in show business and in promotions and manipulation of human psyches. Those are things that I would caution you to be very careful about. And I still go back to the question that I've asked before. Where's, where's the beef? Where's the there there? What evidence do we have that these factually accurate statements actually have any depth to them as opposed to just being, well, factually accurate statements? There is nothing, Arnold, Arthur Conan Doyle said, there is nothing more deceptive than an obvious fact. It's Plausibly Live, the official podcast of the Dave Bowman Show. Back right after this. Oh,
This is The Scotsman. And this is Drew. And we are The Ale Evangelist Show, spreading the good news of good booze across the land. Wine is nice, but beer is better. It is indeed. So tune in to us on the Podcast 99 Network, where California comes to talk, www.podcast99.com. Recording from the home closet way off the 99, I'm Eric Wallace, and this is my podcast. Turn on, plug in, and geek out on the Eric Wallace Podcast. You can also find us at the website, podcast99.com, or on Facebook, Podcast 99. I'm Jeff. I'm Pat. And check us out on Lawless Chat, where we discuss topics from A to Z. And from Z to A. And from soup to nuts. And from nuts to soup. Pretty much everything under the sun. Catch us on a weekly podcast on Podcast 99 Network. Doctor, doctor. Hi there, I'm Christine Papworth. And I'm Wendy Papworth-Bates. And we're your Real Estate Doctors. Listen to House Calls with the Real Estate Doctors on therealestatedoctors.net and podcast99.com. an interesting follow-up to that thought process there. Uh, Breitbart today has an article about the New York Times and the Daily Cause as they were talking about Hillary Clinton, who was, of course, running for president in 2016. And uh, many people feel that uh, Trump's run is simply to assure her election because he's well on record as being a, a fairly large Clinton supporter. In any case, the New York Times, I guess, has a, an article today about the fact that there may be a criminal investigation into the email scandal at the State Department. And the, the lead, the first paragraph, reads as follows. Two inspector generals have been asked, or I'm sorry, let me try that again. Two inspector general have asked the Justice Department to open a criminal investigation into whether sensitive government information was mishandled in connection with the personal email account of Hillary Rodden Clinton, used as Secretary of State, senior government official said on Thursday. Now again, that's a factually accurate statement. The orig- however, it's rewritten uh, story. The original first paragraph published by the New York Times reads as follows. Two inspector general have asked the Justice Department to open a criminal investigation into whether Hillary Rodham Clinton mishandled sensitive government information on a private email account she used as Secretary of State, senior government officials said on Thursday. Do you see the difference in the two statements there? One, the, the rewritten one, removes Hillary Clinton from the investigative target. So even though it's factually accurate in that two attorney generals have, or inspector generals have asked for an investigation into the mishandling of the sensitive information, the first paragraph specifically said that the investigation was into whether or not Hillary Clinton misused it. The second one is simply whether or not it was mishandled. Now, that might seem like a small thing. And again, they're both factually accurate statements, but one gives us more information by which to make our judgment than the other in the same sense that the, the show, Blood Relatives, uh, presented a picture that was... Well, it was, un, it was untrue. 
but they did so without saying anything factually inaccurate. They never told you that, you know, Laura Hernandez was gorgeous. Uh, they never told you that they didn't live in Merced. Uh, they never told you those things, but, but they certainly let you think that. New York Times is kind of doing the same thing. Oh, there's an investigation into this. We'll get to the bottom of whether or not this information was mishandled. But they leave out or wrote out the fact that the person being investigated for the mishandling is, in fact, Hillary Rodham Clinton, which, again, like I said, it's a factually accurate statement. However, it doesn't necessarily paint the whole picture. It works both ways. Uh, already, all the media today is jumping all over John Russell Hauser, otherwise known as Rusty Hauser, who was the shooter in Louisiana last night and the Daily Mail's headline, okay? America, uh, Tea Party, the, the, uh, the Tea Party member and Westboro Baptist supporter who opened fire in Louisiana. So again, it's a factually accurate statement. He was in fact a Tea Party member and he did in fact support the Westboro Baptist Church. But what's, what's missing from the factually accurate statement here? Anybody? Bueller? Bueller? There's a lot missing from that statement, isn't there? Even though it's factually accurate, it's being used to portray things in a way that is um, intended not to draw conclusions about John Russell Hauser, but about those of you that are Tea Party members who probably don't support Westboro Baptist, because frankly, I don't know anybody that does, but, um, but if you do... You're crazy, but God bless you. Um, but you see how information like this is manipulated. We, it was a, a post, Jesus made a post on Facebook the other day, it was hysterical, about uh, he's tired of certain kinds of posts on, on Facebook, and I don't remember exactly what it was, but the, the, the kind of posts where, um, oh, here it is, um, Jesus, who I refer to as Jesus, uh, who listens to the show, uh, one of the biggest, one of the internet's biggest lies. Hurry up, watch this video before it gets banned. And he's right; they they never are. And then I tagged onto that. Breaking news: This will change everything. And how many times do we see these headlines on Facebook, the internet? You know, this will change everything, and it doesn't change anything. There's no actual information in this. Breaking news: They never saw this coming. And then it, you know, it's a story from three days ago. It's it's starting to drive me up a wall. But it's it's indicative of the way. Information is presented truthfully, it's truthfully, it's factually accurate, but it's presented in a way that is designed to lead you to a certain conclusion that may not, in fact, be the correct conclusion. And I talk about that panel I went to some years ago with the writer from the Stockton Record, and, and I hate myself for the fact that I didn't write his name down, who said that. We can write a story, we can write a headline so that the reader comes to what he called, and I'm quoting him here, the correct conclusion, unquote. There's, it's why we have to be so cautious. It's why if you take anything I say at my word, just on face value, you're crazy. You, you need to, what I'm giving you as a starting point, go look it up. If I'm wrong, tell me. I have my sources, I have literally thousands upon thousands of books. I have the internet. I have just like you. But it's possible that I misinterpret information in, on occasion. It's possible. I, I, as I told you, I used to be a Christian pastor. I had a very good friend, uh, Barry, who was uh, also a pastor. I sat on the platform one day as he preached an entire sermon 
from a book in the Bible, Ecclesiasticus, that doesn't exist. He, he, he made it up. And he did so because he wanted to see if people were actually paying attention to him, if anybody would actually challenge him on it. He didn't really... It was an interesting psychological experiment, I guess, and it's something that all pastors and preachers have done at some point, where the rabbis have done at some point, where they want to see if people are paying attention. How we process information and how we pick apart information and how we source information is, is going to become even more critical in this era when you have TV programs that convince you that a murderess is just a, you know, it's, it's a shocking tale because she's so beautiful and her daughter is so gorgeous and her son is so clean cut. When, when you can be convinced that someone who is saying something factually accurate is what you want him to be when there's absolutely no evidence to support his entire life that he's ever been that. These are the things that you've got to start, we got to start thinking. And of course, it starts on the internet with people uh, sharing stories that are clearly sarcasm, clearly satire. But the satire sites themselves are going out of their way to try to look real. We have to be discerning. And we have to not accept things at face value. And as I, I think what Aesop said there is particularly applicable here. Every truth has two sides. It's well to look at both before we commit ourselves to either. It's Plausibly Live, the official podcast of The Dave Bowman Show. Don't forget to uh, download the show, please, and uh, like it, share it on Facebook, all your social media, all that stuff helps. And, and all the great Podcast 99 shows at podcast99.com. Back in just a moment. You know that you can find me. Did you see where El Nino is in the news today? Or, or over the last couple of days, I guess, is more accurate. The uh, El Nino is a common. Everybody's, everybody's agreed now. El Nino, the scientists have agreed. There is consensus that El Nino is building. It's uh, a lot of interesting discussion about whether or not this is the strongest El Nino ever. And, of course, uh, this has Californians excited because what that means is uh, devastating floods and uh, no I'm kidding uh, <laughs> what it means is is the the drought might be over now of course I believe that the drought is a permanent condition it's a permanent political condition that will never change um, but the excitement here is that you know maybe our lawns will actually uh, turn green again and there'll be rain and snow and the ski resorts can open up and and and, and all of this kind of excitement uh, El Nino conditions are intensifying in the Pacific potentially leading to a record event that could reshape. Now, this is where it gets interesting, because this El Nino, this, this powerful El Nino, is becoming yet another example of American imperialism and American environmental destructionism. I'm not kidding. The, uh, the event could reshape weather, world weather patterns from Africa to Asia and North America. It could, could be a boon to drought-plagued California, but it'll do so by steering... You could replace that word steering with stealing uh, rainstorms to California, but that means other parts of the world are going to have droughts. And, you know, they're going to suffer now because California and America are going to 
experience the benefits of El Nino, which hopefully this time will not include massive flooding and the likes of that. The strong record event could virtually guarantee that 2015 will beat 2014 as the warmest year this planet has ever seen, according to records. So see, this is, El Nino is clearly a result of global warming, which as we all know is being caused by Americans driving SUVs and uh, burning fossil fuels, except here in California where we continue to pass laws to stop this from happening, and, and yet it doesn't work, and I don't really know why. Well, that's not true. I actually do know why, but you get the idea. Anyway, this uh, this whole uh, El Nino thing is now being presented as uh, yet another example of America's disdain for the rest of the world, because now America's going to be celebrating the fact that Americans in California can go skiing while people in, I guess, Africa somewhere or Bangladesh somewhere are going to experience drought conditions. And this, of course, is, is bad. And if only Americans would stop driving SUVs and stop burning fossil fuels and stop uh, having so much electricity, then these other countries would not be experiencing the ravages of the El Nino, which is benefiting California. Of course, the flip side of this, and this is the part I don't really, you know, I'm not a meteorologist like my good friend Sussman, but so El Nino's come and go, right? They're not a permanent condition like the drought. The drought is a permanent political condition, but El Nino's come and go, it's logical that one would be stronger than another and that eventually records would be set. But what's going on on the other side of the world? I mean, okay, is it a drought everywhere right now? Is everywhere in the world in drought conditions right now? Or is somewhere else? So, you know, much of the United States is experiencing a drought right now in North America, but does that mean the entire world is? So how is it fair then that they get rain while we don't? I, I, you know, this this whole idea that somehow or another this is a being caused by global warming and therefore it's you know racist or whatever is kind of silly. But uh, there you go. The hallmark of an El Nino is a strip of much above average surface sea temperatures across the equatorial tropic Pacific. It appears like a gash in ocean surface from the west coast of South America to the Central Pacific. It's clearly present as it was in 1997 which brought devastating flooding and mudslides to Southern Cal, droughts and wildfire to Mexico, Indonesia, and Brazil, and widespread coral bleaching from high water temperatures off the coast of Africa, Central America, and Australia's iconic Great Barrier Reef. So, El Nino is a common, and we should all be excited about that because, you know, we're going to benefit, but I just wanted to give you the heads up that while you're just being, you're just, you're just being a-hole Americans, see? And if you really cared about the world, you would do something to steer the benefits of this El Nino to someone else, as opposed to ourselves. Just something to think about, okay? It's Plausibly Live, the official podcast of The Dave Bowman Show. This is Chad. Hey, just thinking about illegal immigration and the people that they say that are here, 11 million or however many there are, they say that it would be impossible to deport that many. And I don't know whether that's true or not, but let's assume that is. 
if they made, what about making, like they say, a pathway to, not citizenship, but a pathway to uh, legal status? The key would be, if they choose to do that, they could never, ever vote. They could never, ever re receive social services. They could never, ever become a legal citizen. They would only be a legal, they would only be a legal resident. And there's a thousand other details, but I don't know if that's true or not, but I just thought, well, maybe you could deal with them like that. But the key would be they would never be able to vote. I don't know what you think. Anyways, thanks. Bye. Thanks, Chad. Appreciate the call. And you can do that too. 565-DAVE. You can leave me a voicemail and ask questions or make comments about things. It's, it's easy to do and kind of fun. Um, I appreciate Chad dropping by and doing that. Chad's got a lot of questions and thought processes, obviously, as most people do. This, this illegal immigration problem is, well, it's like most problems. It's like the drought. It's a permanent condition. We're, we're always going to have problems with immigration. We're always going to have problems with illegal immigration because, well, it gives politicians something to worry about and something to do and something to talk about and something to, you know, pretend to at least try to look like they're some, trying to do something about it. Activity. It gives them activity. And activity is the substitute for achievement when you're, when you're dealing with politics. With regards to Chad's idea here that you could not deport 11 million people. I, I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, I'm told that it's not. But remember when I first started doing my show, Mornings Live on K5, way back when? Well, September of 2007. Back then, the argument was, was very, very intense over illegal immigration. And if you recall, Dick Morris came out with a book, and we had him on the show, and, and, then, and then he didn't show up, and then, then he did show up, and it was a mess. But the discussion at the time was that there were 20 million illegal immigrants in the country. And so you had these two numbers out there floating around, 11 million and 10 million. And, and we actually did some analysis of those numbers. Remember, we talked about, okay, how many people would actually have to be coming over the border in an hour to have 20 million illegal immigrants here? And the number was absurd. It was high. It was beyond expectation. And then we discovered that that's not how most illegal immigrants were getting here anyway. We actually discovered the fact that at least half of the illegal immigrants, at least uh, I think the number was somewhere like eight or nine of the illegal million of the illegal immigrants here, eight or nine million of the illegal immigrants that were currently in the country had come in on visas. They'd come in on tourist visas, student visas, whatever, and just never left. In other words, the government wanted the number to be higher because it lowered the percentage that they were responsible for. If the number was 20 million or 25 million, as some had predicted, and the government only let 8 million in, well, 8 out of 25 is a much lower percentage than 8 out of 11. See the problem? If the, if the number is only 11 million, then most of the people that were here were here because the government wasn't doing its job which you could argue they're not doing on the border anyway, but if we only had 3 million illegal immigrants in the country, do you think we'd really be having this discussion? If, if, if the total number of people that came over the Mexican border to pick our crops and you know, clean our houses and that sort of thing was 3 million people in the entire country, do you really think anybody would care at all? Do you think anybody would even notice? 
So, as, as Aesop said, there's two sides to every truth. What the number was, was debatable to begin with. And could we deport these people? Of course we could. We, we let them in on visas. We can make them leave on the same visas. But we just haven't for whatever reason. Now, there's some problems with that, of course. And, and of course, now 11 million people, do you want to deport them or not? Is it possible? It's possible, not without creating a kerfuffle and not without creating a great deal of political fighting. You're not going to be able to do it. And so the argument has gone, well, just leave them here. Create a path to citizenship. And, and Chad's idea here is, okay, give them a path to um, what is essentially a green card, uh, legal residence, but with the understanding that they can never vote and, as I understood his call, never receive social services. Um, I, get the, I get the sentiment here. I understand your, your argument. Where it falls down in some ways is if you make them legal residents, then they're working. Can you deny benefits to people who are participating in the economic system? I, I don't, you know, again, I know that not all of them are, but I know that a lot of them are working. So uh, to simply say that they're all the same is, is misleading. As far as the voting thing goes, and this is, of course, recognized and, and talked about on conservative talk shows on a regular basis, the whole purpose of, of creating an entirely new class of immigrants is to get them to vote. Because the common belief is that they will vote for Democrats because Democrats will welcome them with omen arms and, and treat them with respect and humanity, and Republicans won't. And more so, it's a divisive in the, in the assumption that most of the illegal immigrants are Hispanic, and therefore, if the Republicans are against illegal immigration, they must be against Hispanics. And so those Hispanics who do vote and who are citizens and participate in the system will be mad at the Republicans because they're being racist. So the whole purpose of bringing these people in, Chad, is to, is to get them to vote because the presumption is they'll vote Democrat. Again, there's nothing more deceptive than an obvious fact, as Doyle said, I'm not necessarily convinced that they will automatically vote Democrat. I know that's the common wisdom, the conventional thought process, but I'm not convinced that that's true. But moreover, based on you know, the questions that we should be asking uh, about voting patterns, is voting is going down, 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 down. Participation is going down, 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 down. Why are these immigrants who are going to come here and be made citizens, given a path to citizenship and so forth, why are they going to be any different than anybody else? What? They didn't come here because they wanted to vote. They came here for benefits. They came here for the, the positive aspects of being here. What's, what's convincing anybody that they're going to go out and vote in mass in this gigantic block of 11 million people who are apparently homogenous and all think the same way are going to suddenly start voting? The numbers say much differently. The, I mean, all you got to do is look at Modesto's District 2. And you'll see what I'm talking about. Hell, you can look at any of the Modesto districts and see what I'm talking about. But particularly District 2, you'll see that voter participation is virtually non-existent. And would suddenly making everybody who's in District 2 a legal citizen with the right to vote improve that? 
I, I, I don't know that it would. So there's some, some questions to that logic. But ultimately, it doesn't matter if you're on the side of uh, a socialist welfare state. It doesn't really matter. The more people you have in can overwhelm the system and force it into that direction. Whereas if you have people who are resisting that, well, you know, obviously they, they're going to have to be brought to their heels. I, you know, you get into this immigration thing and it's always tough because, again, I know lots of immigrants and uh, some of the dearest people in my life are immigrants. My best friend is an immigrant from, from South America. The, my sister-in-law is an immigrant from Russia. The, I dated girls that were immigrants for years. I, I just, you got to be, we, we've got to get a better look at the picture. We've got to get the, well, for lack of better phraseology here, everybody is saying factually accurate things, but nobody's actually telling the truth. Even Donald Trump went down to the border yesterday and changed his mind. He announced that he was changing his mind. He, he was bombastic before he went down there, got down there, saw what was really going on, and went, oh, well, I need to change my mind. Maybe uh, as a collective, we need to all kind of change our minds about what's really going on here, because obviously there's a political agenda on the left that deals with illegal immigration. There's a political agenda on the right to deal with illegal immigration, and there's a political agenda in the center to deal with illegal immigration. And all three of those particular viewpoints are going to pick the factually accurate statements that best support their position. It's a cognitive bias. That's what they're going to do. And they're going to ignore information that might indicate something other than that. And it starts really with that number. How many people are there actually here that are actually coming across the border in, in a legal immigration fact, a tr traditional uh, fashion by which we describe people who come into the country over the Rio Grande River, as opposed to being let in by the government and then not, uh, not required to leave when their time is up. Until and unless we have all those answers, I think personally, I think it's premature to start talking about path to citizenship and the likes of that when we're not even talking about how people got here. We're allowed to believe that they got here you know, in this horrific, dangerous path. We're allowed to believe that. And in fact, it's a factually accurate statement. People are coming in over the southern border. But is that the whole truth and nothing but the truth? And without all of that, how do we make rational decisions? How do we make good policy? And I personally think and personally believe that's part of the issue is that we're not wanting to make rational and popular decisions. We're wanting to we're wanting to make political decisions that benefit a, a certain ideology. So that's my thoughts on it, Chad. Hey, take the time right now. Tell the people that matter in your life you love them very much. You'd miss them if they weren't there. So don't pass up those opportunities. You don't want to have that regret. I'm Dave Bowman. This has been Plausibly Live, the official podcast of The Dave Bowman Show, right here on the Podcast 99 Network. Check us out at podcast99.com. Like us, download us, and share us, and check out all the great shows we have at podcast 99 Com. Have a great weekend, everybody. See you on Monday. Plausibly Live 
the official podcast of The Dave Bowman Show, is a Slippery Fish Entertainment production for the Podcast 99 Network. Copyright MMXV. All rights reserved. For more information, log on to thedavebowmanshow.com. Yeah, I'm going to go do something productive. I'm going to go watch television. <laughs>